to Vocal Minds with Sophia. So I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Gary Byrne, a best-selling author and former White House Secret Service agent officer. I'm not even sure what you call them. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for the invitation to be interviewed by you. I greatly appreciate it. And, how was your um, New Year's? What's that? How was your New Year? What did you get up to? Uh, we, we, we're pretty low-key. We took it easy. Um, we're, we're kind of getting over, uh, well, we, we had a, a, a family tragedy over a year ago, so we're still kind of staying low-key and... Uh, but, you know, I'm glad to be pushing into the new year and uh, and grateful to be here. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear about your loss. Thank you. So <laughs> I'm really excited to speak to you because, first of all, I have never in my wildest dreams ever thought that I would ever speak to a former agent. Um, so tell us a bit about your career as an agent. First of all, I want to know, how does somebody even get a job like a secret service agent? Yeah, so I was, like you mentioned earlier, I was in the uniform division. The secret service is a pretty big agency. And um, so the uniform division is basically the old White House police. And it goes, it dates back, the history of the, of the secret service and the original White House police date back to the American Civil War and even a little bit before. So, um, but anyway, so I was this uh, high school kid who, it, I'm, I'm from Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, in the United States. It is just south of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, before I was, before I understood what, um, what the problem was, um, I just thought I wasn't a very smart kid. I have um, uh, eight, um, dyslexia and um, uh, I'm not hyper, but I have attention deficit disorder. And um, anyway, so clearly I have some learning issues and I, I'd be honest with you, it, uh, I pictured myself just, you know, getting through life and that was that. And anyway, my dad had been in the US Air Force and um, so I thought the military would be a good fit for me. And, and so I joined the Air Force and uh, it was great. I was a security policeman. I loved it. I lived in, I was stationed in Turkey for Merted, Turkey for a year. And um, so when I got out, I wasn't sure what to do. And I made some contact with the Secret Service. But at the time, the, the agent division and the uniform division recruited separately. And... So when I called the Secret Service, the number I got was like a, a field office that was full of agents. And they said, well, you know, you have to have a college degree. And that was probably something that wasn't going to happen for me. And anyway, uh, in the meantime, I go to work uh, for uh, an aircraft manufacturing company near, uh, near where I live. And um, I meet my wife at a nightclub and we're dating. And well, you know, we're dating. And one day she reads this story to me about this advertisement for the Secret Service Uniform Division is recruiting in Philadelphia area. So I looked it up and sure enough, you know, the Secret Service has this police force. And so I applied and when they first offered me the job, uh, I turned it down. And then the next day, the company I was working for started talking about laying people off. 
So I took the job and eventually, uh, shortly after that, Jenny and I got married. We moved to Washington, D.C. And um, I never looked back. It was, it was a great career. I mean, there were some, you know, there were some ups and downs. I talk about that in the book, you know, but I wouldn't trade any of it. Uh, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would do it exactly like I did. Um, but I loved it. I loved everything about it. It's not like you see on TV in the movies, which is fine. I love, I've actually done interviews where people have just showed clips of movies and then said, is any of that real? And, 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 and I get it. And, 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 um, but the truth is we're, we're, you know, it's a federal government agency. They've got all the problems of any other government agency, but they have a very important job. They have a couple very important jobs besides protection of the president, the vice president and, and certain other dignitaries. Um, they're in charge of securing the American currency, the U S dollar. And, uh, and they do, they do a few other things from the law enforcement side. Um, like credit card, credit card fraud, telephone fraud, and they're actually getting into human trafficking. And, and when I say that, I mean, they've always been involved in it, but now they, they, um, they're getting more involved in it. And uh, so um, that's pretty much how I got, I, I, it started. And, and um, it was very exciting. I'll, I'll stop talking and let you ask me a question. No, please continue. No, so what kind of training? So you, you mentioned that you served in the military, in the Air Force. Do you need to serve in the military? No. Okay. Yeah, no, you don't. But I will tell you, if you ask me my opinion, yeah, I will tell you somebody who's been in the military is probably a little bit better of a recruit just because you're used to hurry up and wait. And you're used to... Um, you know, the, the cumbersomeness of a large government agency. And, and, and that's, you know, what you have to get used to is you're going to be in situations where you, the Secret Service, whether the agent division or the uniform division, to really understand what it's like, you know, go out in your backyard and stand for five hours straight and look at a trash can and then take a half hour break, go to the bathroom, eat your meal, do any communications you do that go stand for another, you know what I mean? That's, that's what it comes down to, but that's simplifying the hard part. And, you know, so I, um, I'm sorry, what was the original question? How did I get in? <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. What, what kind no. of training is required? Yeah, so, so they do recruit heavily um, out of college. You have to be a college graduate for the Asian side, but the uniform division, they also recruit educated people you don't have to uh, have a degree to be in the uniform division, but they, if you do, you know, it helps you out a little bit as far as they'll pay you a little bit more money to start off. Um, I think the best type of recruit is for that type of job is probably somebody who has been in the military or was raised by, with a little discipline. I'm not saying, I'm, you know, I have worked with every conceivable human being you can imagine. Do they only employ men for this type of role? Is there females? Did you yeah, have they recruit, yeah, they recruit women. It's hard to recruit women. And when I say that is it's it's got nothing to do with genetics or biology. It's a shit job at times. It's tough. It's a tough lifestyle, like the military. And not, you know, not every job in the military is about combat. Very few is. And in the Secret Service, Contrary to movies and, you know, and um, 
I mean, I was there for 12 years and I never fired around in hostility. Um, I, you know, I did, I will tell you, I, you know, I was involved in making violent arrests and, and I used my firearm basically to, to back people down. Um, but, but I never shot anybody and, um, I never got shot at, um, beaten up. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but that's the nature of the beast. Um, uh, so, so generally speaking, and these numbers may have changed over the years because, um, I've been retired since 2016 and I actually retired from the air marshal service, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but, um, so the secret service, federal law enforcement as a whole, um, they'll, they'll tell you that. 12% roughly, maybe a little bit more is what, you know, in America, what we would say is a minority, you know, they're minorities and, and it might be a little bit higher. And then the women generally used to be between seven and 12%. Now, when I say that, again, it's not, you know, any woman can do that job. Um, is it hard? Yeah, it absolutely is. Does it help to be you know, a man at times, yeah, because you're genetically predisposed to being a little bit stronger, but that's not the whole job. Mm. And and I will tell you, I've never, ever had a female partner that I didn't fall in love with. And I mean, you know, as far as working with them, you know what I mean? I always, always worked with great people, um, men, women, everybody. And, and, and don't get me wrong, not everybody I ever worked with thought I was wonderful. And, and I didn't think they were wonderful, but I never worked with anybody in any job I had where I, where I wouldn't turn around and say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it again. Or I'll, you know, and if you need something, I'm there for you. And, and um, so, and, and law enforcement is like that sometimes a lot of, I guess a lot of jobs are, but you know, cause you, you're, it's dangerous. There's some stress and, um, and you rely on each other. And uh, so, yeah, I, um, so it, when I first came on, um, there wasn't a whole lot of women in my class was of um, 24 and I think we had three women. They all graduated. Um, I think they're probably all retired now. Uh, I think one of them left early uh, to another job and that's pretty common too. Once you get the secret service on your resume, you can kind of go wherever you want, sort of. Um, it's, it's, it's a great, you know, like I said, it's tough, but it, uh, and people's perception of it is is usually a little bit over the top. So, but um, I, I um, so anyway, I think I answered your question about the the women. Um, oh, I did want to say this though. So there are their jobs. There are there, there are positions in the Secret Service um, that traditionally women it's they weren't barred from them, but nobody applied. They were hard yeah. counter sniper, emergency response team. Now. With that said, uh, before I left in 2003, uh, the first woman got on the emergency response team. And I will tell you, the, the male instructor that, that, that was basically her mentor, in other words, she no matter what she did in training, and no matter how good she was, unless this guy signed off on it, she wasn't going to, you know, they were just going to send her back to the regular uniform division. And I talked to him afterwards and, and, you know, of course, you know, nobody's perfect. And when, when the first woman's going on to a, a group like that, the pressure on her is immense. And then of course the men were not perfect. And, you know, the first thing you think I was, oh, well, they're going to let her slide through. Well, they didn't. And this guy, this guy is a friend of mine. He says, he goes, well, the last thing they have to do is 
they do a simulation of you chasing somebody down like on the White House grounds. And it is full speed. You just don't have live ammunition. You have your MP5, your sidearm, you're shooting simulated rounds. And it, it, you're, they've never completed a class without injuries. That's how it's dangerous, it's violent. And they make it real world. And he said, he was, she was chasing him. And he said, he was terrified. He said the closer she got, and when she finally caught up to him, she was literally growling at him. And, you know, so my point is, is that, you know, yes, women are allowed to do any position. Um, but again, they're tough jobs and, and not everybody's wants to put out like that. And the physical conditioning is unbelievable. And uh, counter sniper. Now, when I left, I, I, there wasn't any women on counter sniper. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen any pictures or anything, so probably not. And again, that's a very tough job. You know, you just no matter how good a shape you're in, you have to realize you'd have to be able to climb a hundred foot ladder that's about that wide with a hundred pounds of equipment on your back and then stabilize it and be able to shoot. And so anyway. Wow, that's crazy. I think also because women get like menstrual cycles, imagine if you have to stand for a long time and you're having an accident, like, sorry to be so graphic, but you know, like you, you need to go to the bathroom. You can't well, just stand there. So absolutely real world. And I will tell you the, the, the other side of that for, for men is when you got a little bit older, you had to go to the bathroom a lot mm. and you have to have breaks and you have to take care of your coworkers. And uh, you know, the secret service, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of their biggest critics of their management style, but I'm honest about it. And, and I, when they do things good, I point it out. Now I'm not going to tell you like just recently, the secret service on their social media was posting that, you know, it's like the anniversary of the first, when they first hired women, but what they don't tell you is um, the first women that they hired, they hired in the uniform division and then kept them there for six months. And I guess when they when the agency didn't spontaneously combust, then they transferred them to become agents. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I can't explain to you why they did it. I will tell you that from my perspective as a guy, that it was ridiculous, but it was a it was an old boys, a boys club. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, women worked in the Secret Service. The the offices were full of women that were, you know, clerks and did jobs, support jobs and stuff. And, um, but in like around 1970, 71, they, they got their first female agents. Now they had had females in the uniform division for years. Um, so anyway, you know, they do have women, they tell their version of the story a little bit different than, than completely accurate. So anyway. So when you're standing, take me through, you know, what's going through your mind. You're standing in a position for 10 hours, right? Yeah. It's almost like doing yoga or like meditation because you're just still and, you know, you need, I don't know, like, are you daydreaming day about being on the Bahamas beach? Yeah, or, sure. You know, you're just watching that, that, that piece of grass and just like, yeah, the zone. So it's a little different for each position. So let's say, you know, if you're posted outside somewhere, um, like if you're, so when you first go to work at the White House, you, you, you do what's called the rotation in the uniform division. And you basically work posts outside. And then after a couple of months, um, they start introducing you to the interior posts and stuff. And, 
But when you're outside, so you're standing on the fence line, and and the White House is. Have you ever been to the the White House? Have I? Yeah. No, I've never been to America. Never been to America. Okay. No. So you've been to. Do you live in the UK? I assume. And and have you ever been to like Buckingham Palace or someplace? Not like inside. That? No. Okay. So just picture any facility where there's a fence line and they secure it, right? And so. So you're standing on the you're you're standing on this fence line. You probably have a police booth, like a small office. It's got a phone. It's got some some um, um, long guns, some some more weapons. It's got communications, and and your job is to watch that fence line, monitor the alarms. You know the the trick to security, the Secret Service and everybody. I mean, the Secret Service again, pretty good at it. Uh, is redundancy. So you have a physical fence line. You have electronic alarms. You have uh, humans, the humans, you know, that's watching the alarms, they're watching the fence line. And, you know, the, you're close to the fence and there's tourists coming by and people ask you questions and, and it, keeps you, it keeps you active, but you always have to be looking. And um, one of the things, one of the first times I did an interview with somebody in person and they, they, she kept commenting that I kept, I don't know, can you see my hands, like the top of my hands? Uh, when I stand, I, I stand with my hands above my waist. And, and that is a big law enforcement thing, especially in the Secret Service. And if you watch even, especially modern day video of agents and officers, they almost always have their hands above the waist. And the reason you're taught to do that is, is because everything you need to save somebody's life or your life is above your waist, your firearm, your handcuffs, your radio. And if somebody comes at you, your hands are above your waist and you're that much closer to protect yourself as opposed to with your hands in your pockets or your hands by your side. Now, you don't always do it because, again, like we've talked about a minute ago, you get distracted, you're bored, but you, you always go back to that. And whenever you're interviewing somebody or talking to them, you, you have to assume that everybody is trying to kill you. Everybody wants to kill your protectee. Everybody wants to kill you. Now, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong. If, if you met me and I was on the job or anybody, if you met anybody, they would be polite to you. They'd be kind to you. But, but you guys you were, are allowed to talk, right? So the difference between the guards in London, they're not allowed to speak right. to the crowd right. or anything. Right, exactly. Like people right. go and do this in front of their eyes. Right. They're, they, they're not faced. They cannot even acknowledge you. Right, right. And, and so the difference is we're just, we can, yeah, we're police officers protecting. We're trying to be, excuse me. We're, we're trying to be do a job that's dangerous, but we're trying to be user friendly, you know. And um, and I hate that term, but I I do use it because they, they used to use it. But um, so I would, you know, let's say you approach me and I would I'd see you come in and like you know after you, maybe you're in a group of a hundred, but you're, you're walking right to where I am, and I'm like, okay, she's going to ask me a question. So when you walk up on me, my hands are above my waist. I'm in a field interview stance, and the, what I'm looking at is I've looked at your eyes, now I'm looking at your hands. Where are your hands? You can't hurt me without your hands. You can't hurt my protectee without your hands. Where are your hands? And as you get closer, I might say, hey, how you doing? And I might put my hand up, and so you'll raise your hands. Or you'll pull them out of your pockets, or I'll say, hey, do me a favor. Can I see you pull your hands out? You know, and, and most times people, you know, a lot of times people already have their hands out, or they're going to ask you a question so they have a map, or so, but, you know, I, I want to see where your hands are. And I'm looking at your eyes because I want to see what's in them. Are, are you angry? Are you distracted? Do you look like a normal tourist? Are you outside? Now, you're in a group of 100 people. 
and you're all Taurus, we'll, we'll say for this scenario, but there's one woman standing there with her purse across her chest and her, one hand in the purse and one hand in her pocket. She's, she's not the norm. She's not acting like everybody else. I want to know what she's doing. Is she just trying to get a snack out or her medication because she's about to pass out or is she got a handgun or she's about to detonate a, you know, a weapon, a bomb. So it is constant all the time and it never goes away. I've been retired since 2016 and it, it never goes away. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not crazy and I don't, you know, do it all the time, but I, I, um, you know, it, it, you sort of do do it a lot. And when you're at work, you got to be, it's called being switched on. And you can't do it 100% of the time. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. You mentioned yoga. And um, now I never did yoga, but <laughs> I do, in some of the exercise I do, some of the stretching we do is yoga. And there's, there's nothing wrong with when you're, it helps you. Like when you're doing jobs like that, that are high stress, you're standing for a long period of time. It's exhausting. Breathing exercises are good to do. You know, relax a little bit, look around, adjust. So, um, is psychology a huge part of what you do? Because you mentioned like you have to look at somebody and understand their agenda. Like not everyone can look at somebody and look into their eyes and think, okay, you're a good person, you're a bad person. You have potential to hurt. You've come here to do something bad. Like, right. you know, how how, how how did you learn that level of understanding a human being that you can just look at them and analyze them and pretty much know everything about them? Right. Well, first of all, I didn't say I was always right. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> no, but, but so what you're, what you're, and, and here's the thing, you understand what I'm talking about. You yeah. just, you don't have it in the same context. Yeah. So, um, I'm trying to think of a good, uh, do you play sports? Do you play any sports? Not really. I'm not going to lie to you, unfortunately. No, that's fine. Uh, I'm just trying to think of a, you know. A I watch wrestling, if that counts. I mean, I don't want to, I said I watch wrestling, if that counts, professional right. wrestling. So even wrestling, where some of it's, some of it is choreographed, even when it's not, and, and I've watched some of your videos, so I forget who it was, but you have a favorite wrestler. So you're watching your favorite wrestler. And he's doing, you know, a familiar routine or whatever. And it's it's very entertaining. And then all of a sudden, you see him do something that's not normal. It stands out in your mind, right? That's all, that's all this, that's all we're discussing. You know, what are the norms? So you're out in front of the White House in Washington, DC, and it's summer, it's June, and it's hot and it's humid, and everybody is lightly dressed, pretty much except for people in suits, that's normal. Um, people in shorts, a man that won't make eye contact with you wearing a long coat, that's out of the norm. So that's somebody you would look at. You would walk over and interview. Now, what I described to you is actually the exact description of somebody who attacked the White House back in the 90s. Francisco Duran tried to assassinate Bill Clinton. That's why he was there. And uh, he was mentally ill. Um, um, and he was, that's how he was dressed. He had a long coat on and underneath it, he had a long gun. And, uh, so anyway, so you're looking for things that, that stand out in the norm. Now you have to understand now the secret service teaches you these things. And, and, um, but by the time I got to the secret service, I had been in the air force and the air force teaches you some of these similar things. And 
and behavior at certain places is normal. So think about um, think about the way we behave at a restaurant as opposed to the way we behave in a nightclub. The way you behave in a pub outside of Manchester as opposed to the way you you would yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you're you're going to talk to your girlfriends at a pub with, you know, sailor language. You're going to, you, it's your buddies, you're talking salty, you're, you know, these are your friends, right? So then the next day you meet somebody at a restaurant for a job interview, you're not going to talk the same way, right? Because it's out of, it's not proper, it's out of context. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for, so the elements of a crime or an attack or the simplify them, they're the, the means, you're there, means uh, motive and opportunity and then the intent. And and so anybody that's close to you, they could attack you physically. Do they want to? It's all about demeanor. And 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 you learn it's not you know it's not hundred percent, but it's it's a it's an excellent guideline. And there's a difference. Um, I'll give you a good example. Uh, where I lived the other day, I was coming home from the gym, and as I drove through an intersection at a slow speed, you know, near my house. Um, I saw a woman in jeans and a, and a nice top. She was about 50 years old and she was running up the street. Now that's odd. She's not in jogging clothes. She's got the wrong shoes on. And you can see on her face, what I saw was, it wasn't fear. She wasn't running from somebody. What I saw in her face was frustration and aggravation. And then as I looked up the street, I saw a dog running. She was chasing a dog that got away, her dog. So I knew right away before I even saw the dog that whatever was wrong with her was not fear. Like she was not in danger. And then as soon as I saw the dog, it fit together. And uh, so that's just an example of, um, and, and it's not perfect. You use it as a guideline, um, and, but it, it, it saves lives and, and, and it also helps you react faster um, to, to a situation. Is there the kind of, um, not to make it like about race, but racial profiling, for example, in London, there has been regular Muslim people, men, yeah, who have beards walking around with a, a rack stack, just normal guy right. who has been profiled as a terrorist and now his family is under surveillance. Right. They the family in East London. The government closed all their bank accounts and everything because they assumed that this family was associated with a terrorist group and they were just like normal Muslim, you know what I mean? So if you see, right. for example, a brown guy with a beard pulling up at the White House with a rucksack, are you going to start thinking, yo, this guy could be Al-Qaeda? Or I know it was just before when you served before the 2011 or 2012. I'm not even sure of the date, but because um, I'm not American, by the way. So, uh, but yeah, you know what I mean? I do. So, so again, we're not perfect. And I will tell you, first of all, some of the laws in the UK are different than ours. Um, I'm not going to tell you I'm not predisposed. Like if I saw a group of, uh, and, and this is an excellent question because for my, the last 13 years of my career, I was in the secret service, the air force for four years, the secret service for 12 years. And then the last 13 years, I was a federal air marshal. Um, hired to defend aircraft after 9-11. So I'm predisposed, right? All Muslims are bad. That's not what reality is. 
No, yeah, but that's not what reality is. Okay. It's not. It's not no, that you're a Muslim. So wait, are you telling me that the U.S. government are literally brain brainwashing their staff to believe that all Muslim no. people are bad? No, no, no. But but you know you have to look at you know um, what happened on 9/11, and okay. and when you do what I did, uh, you look at it from a different perspective. It's mm-hmm. easy to sit back and say, well, not everybody's a terrorist, and that's true. They're not. And I have met. Well, the truth is. I think I've only met one terrorist, so, but I've met thousands of Muslims. And listen, it's not about, this kind of, what I'm about to say kind of incorporates a lot of things. It's not about what gender or sex you are. It's not about your skin color. It's not about your religion. It's not about where you're from. It's about behavior. If you're a decent person behaving well, then that's good. And if you're a jerk, you're a jerk. And I don't judge people by the way they look. I mean, do I react to the way they look? Sure, but that's not that's not setting my that's um, um, not set in stone. Things change. You you know, there's there's the old saying, you know, first uh, appearances or whatever, or what you judge people by. And what I try not to judge, what I try to judge people by, if I have to judge them, is by their behavior. And that's what we're talking about. What's normal behavior? What's safe behavior? Listen, it's not about you know. or whatever it is of Muslims are, you know, decent people who are are peaceful. Listen, there are Catholics and Christians and Protestants that are, that are hostile and terrorists and and whatever in a different, for a different reason. And, but it doesn't matter. And from the law enforcement perspective, I could care less. What I don't want you to do is harm somebody else an innocent. And I don't want you to harm me. And, you know, um, it's easy. We've, we've made mistakes. My, my own field office in the very beginning after 9-11, you know, we, we jacked up somebody on an airplane and um, now their behavior was odd, but, and I think in the beginning of this incident, this person was trying to, you know, was trying to draw out the air marshal or who they thought was the air marshal. And they did, and it didn't go well for anybody. So, um, but anyway, yeah, if you get locked into a stereotype, because of somebody's look, appearance, their gender, you're setting yourself up for a disaster, for, for making a mistake. Now, nobody's perfect. We're not. But, um, you know, just because you look a certain way doesn't mean that you behaved in that, like that person, you know, not everybody behaves that way. And, and, and you, can't, you can't blame them for it. You know, the British government has made some mistakes and so have the United States government. And actually I've been involved in mistakes with people before in law enforcement. I've arrested people, you know, under the suspicion of something or, or detained them and then realized it wasn't what I thought it was and let them go. And, and that happens. And here's the thing. Um, you know, I've been, when I was a cop a couple of times, I was accused of doing wrongdoing. And, and one time I was accused of abuse, physical, too much physical violence. But once it was reviewed of what happened and what I saw, and the way I perceived it, I was cleared immediately. And the person that that was involved in it, once they heard me explain what I saw, then they understood it a little bit better. So it's it's not simple as you know, like oh, you know, they're wrong because they did that. Now I will say this to you that um, if 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 a family is being looked at like that, like there's got to be something. I want to believe. There's got to be, they know something that they're not divulging. You know, there's got to be a connection somewhere. 
And, um, but also too, you're not necessarily guilty by association. Mm. So I worked with a guy when I was at the White House, we worked with a guy, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he was originally, uh, he was born in Morocco. Okay. And his father was a diplomat um, for the Moroccan government, I think. Anyway, th- my friend, my coworker had immigrated to the United States with his mother, became a US citizen, he was in the Secret Service. They had family friends that were diplomats in the Middle East, from the Middle East in different countries. And, um, and this guy had terrorist connections, but you have to look at the whole, you know, what's a terrorist connection? He has a, this guy has a, this diplomat has a childhood friend who grew up in Saudi Arabia, who is in a wealthy family, who somebody donated money to an organization that's considered, you know, a terrorist organization. Uh, that doesn't mean this guy is, is doing anything wrong. So you have to take it in context. So what does um, a normal life of somebody who is a, an agent or an officer, yeah. is it, you constantly agitated, even when you're not at work? I don't know the hours. What is a normal shift, like eight hours? It doesn't matter what they tell you it's going to be. It's always a nightmare. So, so normally you're scheduled for eight hours a day. But I will tell you, in the uniform division, in the agent division, now if you're an agent at a field office somewhere else in the country, or they also have field offices in, in, um, in you know, everywhere in, in around the world. There's field offices in, in the UK and Ireland, excuse me, everywhere. The uniform division is basically just in the Washington DC area. Although we do travel where they travel wherever the president goes. And um, so a typical day, and, and you've probably noticed I get distracted and I go off topic, keep me on this topic. Okay. A typical day of an officer, a typical day of an agent, on a protection detail, a typical day of an agent at a field office, and then if you want, I'll, I'll walk you through what it, what it, what my experience was, yeah. what it what's like to be a president, like what I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so I anyway. think that's what people are curious about. Too. Yeah, yeah. So the uniform division, like I worked day work when I worked at the White House, so I'd get up at like four o'clock in the morning. Sometimes even earlier. Now, housing in Washington D.C. is astronomically expensive. Now, I know you understand that because real estate in the U.K. is expensive. And so, anyway, um, you have to live 50, 60 miles away from Washington. Either you're either Virginian or from Maryland, or you live in Virginia or Maryland. Um, very few people lived in the District of Columbia because it was expensive. And um, but anyway, so I lived in Maryland. I lived about 60 miles away down by the Chesapeake Bay and uh, you know it's a bay area waterfront area and uh, I'd get up at between 3 30 4 o'clock in the morning I would um, sometimes I would shower at home and leave but a lot of times I would go to work without doing it and then work out and then shower at work they the secret service had a, a gym on the complex uh, they had showers you could come into work and work out before and they would they would also if the manpower was there, they'd let you work out on their time too. Because the more that they let you exercise, the better shape you're in, the less injuries. And <laughs> yeah, three three years after they start letting people exercise on the job back in the early 80s, the injury, back, lower back injuries dropped 60%. Wow. So, yeah, huge. So anyway, so I, I get to work. I work out. 
I go to my post. Now, my post that sort of made me famous was working outside the Oval Office in the West Wing. And I would go to that post. I would relieve the day work guy, the midnight guy. And that post outside the Oval Office on midnight shift, there was one guy assigned. And day work and afternoons, there were two people and you rotated every hour or whatever you wanted to. So my, my partner might take the post first and then I would work out a little bit slower, get a better workout in, eat breakfast, you know. <laughs> and then, you uh, get good and, uh, catering in the White House. Like you work there. So do you get like president? Yeah, not for us. Yeah, not for us typically. No. So a lot of people bring their own food, but you can walk right outside the, the complex and eat anything you want. And the food, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's um, even though it's an expensive area, I didn't think like eating, I mean, eating is always more expensive, but it wasn't crazy. Now, once in a while, so the first family in the White House, they have their own, in the mansion, they have their own chef's staff, right? And they cook for them and they cook for their guests. And then in the West Wing, the food is done by the military, primarily the Navy. It's called the Navy Mess. That's what they, they call a place to eat in the, in the Navy. And it's this very pretty, beautiful place in the West Wing. And they typically feed the president during the day. And then when he goes over to the mansion. But these groups of people work together when they have to, when there's a big event, when the prime minister of England comes to the, the White House. Everybody that is in food service, whether it's for the mansion or for the military, they all work together. Um, and then, so when they have these events, sometimes we get to eat the leftover food. It is great. I bet. <laughs> yeah. So, so typical day, um, I go, uh, I take my post. Depending on who pr the president was at the time, it, you know, it depends on what time they come over. When you, when you go to roll call in the morning or... If you skip roll call, you still have to go in, you read this book, and they give you a copy of the president's schedule. So there's a public schedule for the president every day. And that's probably 60 to, to 100% of what he's going to do. There's always stuff on there that says, you know, on our copies, that will say OTR, off the record. And it's not for the public. It might be something they're doing personal. But but uh, it lets you know that, you know, their comings and goings and the times and I mean, they don't always stay to the schedule. Um, some presidents are like a Rolex watch. They're on to the minute. And some presidents don't even know how to read a watch, you would think. So, but, you know, that's set that aside. It is what it is. You take the good with the bad. So your own post, you stand, I would stand for a couple hours. I would get relieved. You, you, you know, you, first thing you do is you run to the bathroom. You eat some food if it's time to eat. And then you go back and you relieve your guy. Um, sometimes there's there's job like you know for instance if you work in the west wing and there's an alarm somewhere in the west wing of the mansion if you're on if you're on break you're the response person so if a fire alarm goes off in the mansion or the west wing or or somebody is detected somewhere where they're not supposed to be if you're on response you go and find out what's going on so um and then, um, you know, next thing you know, eight hours has gone by. And so it's like around two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, typically, you know, you work a lot of overtime in that job, a lot. And you can't really turn it down. And um, you can sort of at times, but um, they put a lot of pressure on you. And, you know, it's good to make extra money. And you can also, when you work overtime, not only... Do, can you take it as, you know, just overtime pay? 
excuse me, but um, it is, you can also take it as, as comp time, time off. So typically what we would do in the uniform division is you'd work the first, a pay period is two weeks and you would work the first say 20 hours for money. And then anything over that you would take as comp time because it helped, it would help keep you in a lower tax bracket. Wow. Um, and then if you're leaving at eight hours, they, they, they have roll call at 2.30, they relieve you about three o'clock. And then you, you walk out to the ellipse. You, sometimes you, depending, I always changed. I never wore my uniform in and out, but I would change and, and in my jeans and, and uh, grab my gun and, and, and get my car and drive an hour and 10 minutes home, you know? And, and, but uh, um, when you go on a, on a detail, let's say we go to, instead of Washington, the president's going to go to LA and he's going to be there for a week. And those, that's when you work, you know, almost nonstop. And, and uh, you, you probably get more, more time sleeping on a plane in between trips, especially during an election year. It's, 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 um, it's monotonous. It's boring at time. Most of the time it's funny. It's exciting. You meet great people, you work with good people and you see things that nobody will ever see. And you typically, nobody ever hears about until like, you know, and this is one of the things that was hard for me to do when I decided to write this book was to talk about these things. Now I, I limited to what I talked about. Um, you know, I, I talked, I, I talked about, you know, who, the, what I experienced, who the Clintons really were or, and other people, but I, you know, 20 years later, I wasn't trying to burn everybody to the ground. I just talked about what was already public from my perspective, how it happened to me and, and, and those kind of things. Um, for an agent, so an agent on the president's detail, it, um, so they come in about the same time we do, we might be staggered a half hour. Um, and then they go and they, they immediately after roll call go and push off. And typically that early in the morning, all the agents are over in the mansion because the president hasn't come down yet, right? So he's still, you know, he's still up on the living quarters. And the, the top two floors are the top two floors of the White House are the living quarters. It's about 25,000 square feet. It's beautiful. Anyway, so, yeah, so, so, you know, they'll go over there. They know what the schedule is. They've already got things set up. They, they, you know, 24 hours before they took that shift, their supervisors, based on what the schedule was 24 hours before, had already planned what's going to happen. Now, but you have to be ready for what's, you know, changes. And the, and the person that um, was really the first time I really experienced somebody who would just sort of did whatever they wanted when they first became president was President Clinton. You know, he, he'd come down in the morning and decide to go for a run and they weren't set up for it. And so, you know, eventually we were, they worked it out with the president and it, because it became dangerous. Um, it's different of being Bill Clinton, the governor of Arkansas, is really different from being Bill Clinton, the president of the United States. Because one thing you have to understand about an elected official who's the head of a, a country, and, I, and I'll include the king and queen of England and their families, and also the, especially the prime minister of England, but the head of any country, half of that country loves them and half of them hate them. And half the world loves them and half the world hates them. And there's a small percentage of people that want to destroy them because of some mental illness, and, and that's a big deal. <laughs> and so, um, so you have to, it, securing these people is all encompassing. It's intrusive. It's intrusive for them. It is tough on the protectees. 
and it's a tough on the people that do the, the work. Um, there's a huge burnout rate. There's a huge alcoholism, divorce. The Secret Service is higher than other law enforcement, and a lot of protection is. But with all that, all those negative things, I will tell you, I wouldn't have traded a minute of it. I saw some of the greatest things. Humorous, sweet, funny, scary. Uh, and a lot of them are in my books. My first book was Crisis of Character. And my second book was Secrets of the Secret Service. And and there's, you know, there's good stuff in, in both of them. So. You served not only under one president, but two. You spent much uh, you spent longer with Bill Clinton than George Bush Sr. But from your personal experience with both of them, who were you more fond of as a person? As a person, not what they do. No, no, right. Yeah. Right, not politics. No, I, yeah. get, it. I get it. Because, and you bring up a good point inadvertently, is no matter who gets elected, again, half the people in the country roughly wanted them as president. Mm -hmm. So you have to set aside your politics. Now, George Herbert Walker Bush, Papa Bush, um, was the first guy, first family I protected. So, but when I left, his son was president. So I, I usually say I came in with Papa Bush. I left with son Bush. I had eight years of the Clintons in between. And that's really what happened. And so the Bush family is a huge family. They're a very large family. And um so they're very kind, they're very nice, um, they're generous. Generous to almost a fault. Um, they're nice in ways that are almost disarming. You had to pay attention to what you were doing around them because you could get so relaxed, you forget what you're doing. The Clintons, a little bit different. They were a small family. Um, they brought um, rumors of baggage with them when they came. Um, but I will tell you that I, no matter, you know, with all the stuff I have in my books that might be, you know, that it's already public, but it's, I was there, it was my perspective. You might consider negative, but the truth is it wasn't all. There was some nice, sweet times and, and Bill Clinton, um, you know, when people say, what's he like? Here's how I describe him. You'd love to have a beer with him. Do you trust him to drive your 27 year old niece home? No, but he's a nice guy. He's smart. He loves to socialize. He does. Um, and in certain ways, he's kind um, that, you know, again, you have to be careful. It's almost disarming. And um, and, and Hillary Clinton was more businesslike. And, and I did have run-ins with her. But again, I don't I don't hold a grudge. If, if I was still in the Secret Service and she got elected, I would protect them 100% of my ability. And I would absolutely sacrifice my life to protect one of these people, whether I like them or not, or like their politics, because that's what you swear you'll do. And people in the country who, they this is why they want you there. They want me there because I will do that. And I did do that. And and uh, I'm retired now and I'm grateful for that. But, um, you know, that's the job and it's serious. And it's it, um, you can have a lot of fun, but you have to realize what the final outcome could be and it can be violent and it can be dirty and it can be uh exhausting but um i wouldn't trade it for anything so how do you get into the mindset that you are willing to sacrifice your own life for somebody who is not your mother not your father not your family member but you're saying look i'm willing to die for you you know i can't even imagine 
maybe a family member is more reasonable and many people would die for their family but this sure. is somebody who's not associated to you in any in any way apart from being the president of the country that you you come from you know yeah it's probably different for each person a little bit but for me it's it's sort of simple so my first sort of first of all when i was a kid i was not reckless but risk taking risk taking i like adrenaline i do don't get me wrong um I'm not like, I don't skydive. I don't, I mean, I, I've definitely gotten, as I've gotten older, I've, you know, slowed down a little bit here and there, different things. But I, like, I loved dirt bikes, motorcycles when I was a kid. I love, you know, when I swam, swimming fast, diving deep, how whole, you know, it's not just enough to be able to hold your breath to swim. How long can you hold, you know, always the extreme. And um, so I'm kind of predisposed to risk. Um, when I joined the Air Force, you know, you take an oath to the country and, you you know, I was a security policeman in the Air Force. So that, that's the group of people that's in charge of securing everything from the from the personnel to nuclear weapons. And the first thing they tell you is, is that you're expendable. <laughs> and so, you know, and they give you the scenario. They say, listen, if terrorists ever grab you and say, if the Air Force doesn't do A, B and C, we're going to kill this guy. You're dead. Because we don't, we don't care you. about you. And we can replace you tomorrow. And that's true. And, and so <clears throat> so the way I deal with it is this. I, you took an oath to get in the Air Force. It's a serious thing. You understood it. And then I, I joined the Secret Service. And again, it's as simple as I might not like this person, but somebody does. The perception they have of them. And that's what you have to realize. The person that you may like, you know, if you particularly like a, a certain politician, that you have a public perception of that. And that's not the whole story. Um, my perception is going to be different because I know them better. I know them personally. And, and you know, again, if you were to tell me when I was working that I was going to tell a story about them. And again, the stories I tell are only, they're already public. Um, and it's just that I was there and this is my perspective. And so, but um if that I was going to talk about it, I would have told you you were crazy, you know, but I saw things differently when, when I had transferred to the other job and to the air marshals. And so anyway, but um, you, you, you have to desensitize yourself. You have to take your training seriously and you have to train yourself to the point of exhaustion and you have to train yourself to the point of where it becomes second nature. So, and you understand this, you just don't put it in the same perspective. So you know, think about the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, like how you get out of bed. Do you put your feet on the floor? Do you put on shoes, slippers first? Do you, when you walk from the, do you, when you first get up, do you go right to the bathroom or do you go right to the coffee maker? It's, ha you know, it's, it, it's, it's repeated, repetitive training that becomes habit and becomes a mindset. And, you know, you have to do it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, I talked about keeping your hands above your waist. Practicing your friendship, your fighting skills. You have to bring this all together with the mindset of, I don't want to have to use these things, but if I do have to use them, I want to have to make that decision like this. Right then. You cannot hesitate. Just like if um, if you were, if your friend was holding a child and you were standing next to them and the child or your friend's child was on a counter 
And as the child was crawling off the counter, you're not going to say, well, man, they're going to be upset if she falls. I'll run over. You're going to move without thought. You're going to, you're going to get a dump of adrenaline. You're going to perspire in places that you don't even know. And you're going to move towards them with your arms out because that's natural. And, th and I am explaining to you exactly what we do in, in certain scenarios. You just, and when it's something scary that happens, we, we literally are trained to go, what most people would do, oh, crap, and then move. You know, don't be afraid to be afraid, but then you got to move. You got to move, 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 and, and you have to move on what you're seeing. I see a child moving towards the edge of a counter. I have to stop this. This is bad. So do I, as I'm moving forward, can I reach the child's leg and stop them? Or do I have to dive on the floor so they land on me and I catch them? You know, yeah, and 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 you hope you make the right decision. And that's being in the Secret Service or the military or in law enforcement in general. It's a split second decision. And then what you also have to realize is that when it's over, you're gonna everybody that sees it or knows about it is gonna make an opinion about it. So you have to be ready for that, you have to have a thick skin. And I'll be honest with you, in the beginning, I didn't. I didn't. I was very sensitive to criticism, but you have to learn to put it away. So um, again, it's it's about reaction time. It's about training. It's about practice. And it's about realizing that you said you would do something. Now, nobody wants to get shot protecting somebody or injured. But, you know, a lifeguard doesn't want to drown saving somebody. But it happens, right? So it's the risk you take. You have to decide it's worth it. And it's not just worth it. Like for me, it wasn't about, was it worth it for me? What it was about was, is what the United States of America, a constitutional republic requires people, you know, to keep that, that lifestyle and that the way we live intact. And this applies to any country, I guess. You have to take risks. It's dangerous. It's, it's not easy to keep, keep the United States the United States. And um, it's not perfect, but it's got to be done. And, and that's the mindset. I'm not going to tell you there weren't days where I was like, I cannot believe this bullshit. You know, or, <laughs> you know, it, it happened all the time. And and I am sarcastic. And you have to have a dark sense of humor with your coworkers. And you joke about things that you would never say to your family or, or friends. But but it helps pass the time and it helps pass the tension because boredom does grow tension. So anyway. So as I mentioned, you served under two presidents, one a bit more, if not extremely more controversial. To be honest, I don't know much about George Bush, Papa Bush. Yeah. Um, he is not really known right. in, outside of the US. He has not got any like controversy or juicy scandals. As you, you mentioned, he's a very family orientated, like really nice. Yeah. Just imagine, you know, like just the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you wrote a book about Bill and Hill Clinton. Give us the rundown about yeah. that book. So, so Crisis of Character, the first book, is really about my life. It's just how my life crashed into theirs. And so it's kind of my memoir. Um, basically, to put it in a nutshell, is, you know, Bill Clinton was uh, investigated for having an affair with uh, a young woman on his staff, Monica Lewinsky. And um, my unfortunate claim to fame was I was I was the first person in the history of the Secret Service that was ever forced to testify against the president he was protecting in a criminal case. His impeachment case um, 
there were there were probably 24 people roughly in the Secret Service who were involved in this, who knew what was going on. And from the time that it happened, you know, it's, it's important to understand the context. They were having an affair. When it was happening, we all knew. We saw it. I didn't believe it at first. I knew what was going on. Monica was one of um, five women, roughly, that I that I knew about that that you could that I believed he was having contact with. And and so, again, I'm not I'm no I'm nobody's moral compass. My job was not to be his moral compass or tell him what to do with his life. My job was to protect him, regardless. Did I was it uncomfortable to watch? Yeah, because it was. First of all, you have to understand as far as Monica went, she put herself where she wanted to be. It's easy to, to think of her as a victim, but she's also, she is a victim, but she's also a victim of her own bad behavior. She forced herself. And in the beginning, I just thought she was somebody who was trying to climb the ladder, which is, is okay. And, but that's it not happens, what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's not what it was. And so, so um, I ended up having to testify. I said there was about 24 people. And eventually the first time in my life that I rise to the top of a group, it's during this crap. And, and I basically end up being the guy that the, the, the investigators, the part of the Justice Department that was investigating this was an independent counsel hired by the Justice Department. It was called the Starr Investigation. Judge Starr was a, was a, 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 a pretty well-known, uh, appreciated American judge. Anyway, he's in charge of it. And they realized that I was posted outside the Oval Office for about three years and that every time somebody went in or out, that was not on the schedule, we wrote it down. And when they, they subpoenaed the logbook, they realized there were two logbooks, one for the Oval Office and one for the ground floor of the mansion that goes up to the living quarters. And they subpoenaed them both. And, and excuse me, the one outside the Oval Office, uh, you know, when they, they counted my name 300 times, when they got to 300 times of signing somebody in, you know, that they said, this is the guy. And then there was somebody on the Clinton staff from years before when they first got there, who ended up getting fired. Now, it wasn't because of me, but before they got fired for whatever it was they did, um, I had a run in with this person and I, I, I kicked him out of the West Wing and they held a grudge. So when they got subpoenaed uh, secretly to go to the grand jury, they spilled their guts about everything. And they, they made it look like I was the puppet master of the West Wing, which I wasn't. I, listen, I worked there for a long time. I had good rapport with everybody. Yes, I fixed a lot of things. Yes, I, when I say fixed, I solved a lot of problems for the staff. I solved things that would have blown up and been issues between the Secret Service and the staff because the staff is the staff and the Secret Service has rules. I fixed. Um, and I ended up putting myself in a position where my case went all the way to the US Supreme Court. And the chief of the Supreme Court at the time was Judge Rehnquist. And he took about a week to deliberate on the, and what we were trying to say was, was the relationship between a protectee and somebody in the Secret Service is the same as a spouse relationship in the United States. If you were in the United States and you, and you were married, you, know, you had a husband, you can't be forced to testify against that husband or they forced to testify against you. And that's what we were trying to, push forward with the Secret Service because it's so dangerous for a protectee and their lives are always on the line that if you if you don't give us that same protection, the protectee may push us away 
and then you're leaving the opportunity for somebody to get in there. And uh, that's that's simplifying it, but that's pretty much what it was. Well, of course, it failed. They, <laughs> the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's that's funny. No. <laughs> and then um, uh, they gave me 72 hours to surrender myself or be prosecuted for obstruction of justice. So I had to go in after six months of wrangling and stress, and it was horrendous for everybody. It was horrendous for Bill Clinton. It was for horrendous for Monica Lewinsky, but they did this. You know, they, I, it's not that I don't have sympathy for them, but their behavior was a, a train wreck. And he was who he was. She was who she was. And again, she did everything she could to put herself in that position. She befriended people to get access to the West Wing. I'll put it to you this way. At that time, she was originally a White House intern, right? There were 200 Clinton interns at that time. Can you name another one? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so uh, I had ended up having to testify, and, and it was embarrassing. I felt bad talking about Bill Clinton's personal life. Um, I felt like I... I, um, I let the Secret Service down. Um, and the Secret Service is, is a little guilty in this too, because to protect the senior agents that knew the same information I did, they pushed us forward. They kind of us to use division guys. Um, now, again, I'm, you know, I didn't write the book to get back at anybody. I was mm -hmm. very diplomatic. I left, I told stories accurately and true, truly. Everything is 100% true. 20 years later, I don't need to burn somebody because he pissed me off then or because I didn't like them or because they didn't like me. You know, you got to you got to forgive and forget sometimes. And but you can still tell the story and you just don't name the person. And and you, you say what their role is, but it's not important. Now, does that if that person reads the book, will they know it's them? Yeah. But nobody else will. Just about nobody else. So, anyway, so um, yeah, uh, it was crazy. Again, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I thought I would, I really thought I would end up losing my job. I, I At one point in the beginning, I was like, I'm not talking about anything. I'll let them jail me. I was going to say, because say if you have a friend, right, and he's having an affair with multiple women and his wife reach out to you and say, look, it's my uh, husband. You know, you're going to, you're not going to say, look, I know that your husband is having an affair, right? Exactly. So like, I, did you did you ever consider saying you know what I don't know anything but the thing is I, right, I imagine that there is hard evidence to prove that you are aware of this Not right? Right. that's yeah. why you can't get out of it right yeah in the very beginning I thought I could get away with it and 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 if you get a chance to read the book um there like there's a lot of things like for instance um we Lawyers are expensive. So we were being represented by Secret Service attorneys. And of course, they're really looking out for the Secret Service's reputation as well as the president's. And they could give a crap about their employees to a certain extent. But they tried to make it look like it was all about us. And then some of the uniform division officers were also being represented by a local police union's attorney. And then I went to a friend of mine who had been an attorney for the Central Intelligence Agency for five years. 
and he was and and then now at this time he was a, in a in a law firm in Washington D.C. and he he was that kind of player. He's the kind of guy if you work for the government and you and you have a problem, this is the guy you go to. So and we're family friends. Um, we're actually related by marriage, and um, and he's a good guy. Um, and um, so anyway, when the story broke, and I'm sorry, I started to say this earlier to put it in context. The affair happens, and then the story breaks three years later. I thought we had dodged a bullet. I really thought we were in the clear. Right. I mean, I always thought it would blow up in our faces, but after three years and all the other scandals that the Clintons were involved in, I was like, Christ, they're never going to go after, you know. Yeah. That's the last thing that's going to blow up. And but, but I was wrong, and it did. And the problem was that Monica was telling other people. And, um, and then Bill Clinton was also being sued multiple times by other women that he had either was being accused of sexual assault, rape, or he was being accused of, um, uh, you know, bad behavior or exposing himself. And so it was the, the Paula Jones investigation that kind of ended up pushing this forward. And I have no animosity towards her. I feel bad for these women. And I don't know how, you know, I don't know if they're all true, but um, I will tell you that what Paula Jones said, what, what, um, uh, the other woman, um, Juanita Broderick said, fits into the behavior that I saw. So, and the behavior that I heard about from the state troopers, you know, the rumors, we, everything they told us, we saw repeated almost verbatim in Washington. So anyway, um, and I also am, you know, a, a, I also am predisposed in being a cop and, and what I would consider a kind male is, listen to what they have to say and then, and, and look into it, you know, and, and, and just assume that they're telling the truth because what they're telling you is not that somebody stepped on your foot. They're telling you that somebody violated them and possibly, or and it's, that's a, a heinous thing. And so anyway, um, it was out of control. It was the craziest time in my life. It destroyed a lot of careers in the secret service. It, it damaged mine. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't feel sorry for me. I survived fine. I stayed in the Secret Service. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell you that when I transferred to the Air Marshals, part of the reason was patriotism because of 9-11, but it was also because I wanted to put, I wanted, I couldn't get my hands clean. You know, I wanted to put it behind me, so to speak. And, and I always felt a little, I, no matter what, you know, it was, what I did was legal. I had to do it. I was going to be prosecuted if I didn't but I always felt bad about it. And I never thought I would talk about it. But then years later, after separating from the Secret Service and being an air marshal, I saw things differently. And, and then, you know, when she, Mrs. Clinton decided to run for president again, you know, I thought, well, if she gets elected and, you know, she does some of the crazy things that will affect our lives, my family's life, you know, um, how can I look my kids in the eye and say, hey, I knew that this might happen and I didn't tell the truth about it. So I, with the court, uh, somebody, a friend came to me, my, my co-writer, Grant Schmidt, and his parents came to me and said, hey, um, you know, Grant wants to write your life story. And I said, no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. And they said, oh, no, you know, it'll be great. And I go, you know, you see a book that's successful in a movie. I see me losing my pension and I see me being called a liar. And I see all this crap that my wife and I went through before we had kids and, and it did affect us. Like when my kids were small, 
when Elizabeth, who's the oldest, she was about 12 and they were starting American history. You know, I, I sat her down and said, listen, you know, get ahead of my computer. And I said, you know, Google my name, you know, and, and I said, now Google my name and Bill Clinton's name. And she did. She's like, oh, and, I, and she knew a little bit, you know, and I said, you know, if you you have to be careful when you're if you're doing research on for a project or something that involves Bill Clinton and me, because if you Google something incorrectly, you could end up at an adult website, you know, so yeah, no, right. So yeah, if you if you don't if you Google if you're a kid and you're Googling something and you Google like Bill Clinton and some sex act, you could end up going to a you know an adult site. So anyway, so I explained to my kids, you know, softly that you know I was in the Secret Service. This, this is what happened, and and then um, so anyway, and even at that time I didn't think I would ever write about it. But yeah. when they first came to me, I said I wouldn't do it, and then. They're, they're good friends. I've known them a long time. Um, so I listened to what they had to say. And so just as a, to be nice, I said, listen, this is what I'll do. I was still working as an air marshal. I was working all the time, flying all over the world. I said, I said, uh, I'll give Grant a writing sample and I'll give you four months. And in that four months, you have to do some research of your own and realize what you're asking me to do. It's not a good idea. It's going to put too much pressure on us. I don't feel like being popular because I had to testify about Bill Clinton's escapades and and you know do I do I think it's important for for the the version of the story from my perspective to come out I did but I didn't want to be the one doing it so make a long try to make a long story short within three months within two months I gave him four months and I also I also told them that my wife would never agree to it so it wasn't going to happen you so, mentioned earlier that you, you to protect your family you thought that she was going to be elected and for you to protect your country and your family you had to let this information out I for did. those that have not read your book and are going to read that book yeah. now that they've had this interview yeah. what is that what is that information well well she's she's the public perception like i said earlier everybody's public perception is a little different Mrs. Clinton is not a competent person. She's not a nice person. She's not somebody who can get stuff done. And this is what I experienced. This is what I saw. This is the, the things that I, you know, she's somebody who screams and yells. She can't handle pressure. She And listen, everybody raises their voice at times. I saw Bill Clinton raise his voice at times. And Bill Clinton does not practice the kind of politics and that I particularly like. But he could get stuff done. She is not. And they try to, you know, they try to conceal what she really, who she was. And, and I thought, you know, and there were other people that have told the truth about her. And, and I thought this is when I decided that, that they were right. And I should do this. I completely flipped the other way. Um, we had three working chapters of the book and a, and a forward and I read it and I thought I'm in a unique position. You, you can call me a liar, but then you have to answer this question. Why was I subpoenaed six times? If what I said wasn't true, why was I subpoenaed six times? And then why did I have to testify at the direction of the U.S. Supreme Court? Of course, everything I said was true. Why would I lie about it? I didn't even want to talk about it. So I knew people would come out and call me a liar. I, was, I got prepared for it. I flipped the other way. My wife felt the same way, which stuns me to this day. And we jumped into it with two feet. 
And, and what I wanted people to know, like the Clintons, don't like them. Not my business. Vote for them, don't vote for them. Not my business. Know what the truth is. She's not really, even as a lawyer in Arkansas, she, she only, I mean, if I was to tell you that the only reason she worked for that law firm is because her husband was the attorney general of the state and then the governor, I would tell you, you could find five things that would prove that would lead you to believe that was true. Now, if you love the Clintons, you don't care what I say. And that's fine. I, I doesn't bother me again. Uh, you know, that's the constitutional republic we, that we live in here. So anyway, um, but I wanted to get the truth out and I wanted to clear the Does record. Does it surprise you that she stayed with him? He publicly humiliated. Let's go back to when he did all that with the women. Yeah. He publicly humiliated his wife and there was no way to, you know, reduce that. She was publicly humiliated all the whole world knew that her husband was having multiple affairs and she yeah. decided to stay with him. Does that ever surprise you? No, because here's what I, here's what I believe is that she, she knows about it and she okay. agreed to it. They, they had an agreement. And I say that because again, when you listen to the testimony of Juanita Broderick, when you listen to the testimony of other women who did not come forward on their own, they were forced to come forward years later because their names were divulged in other court cases. And they said that after it happened, whatever the accusation was, Hillary Clinton would show up at some public event or where they were and say, hey, you know, basically keep your mouth shut. She would grab them by the hands. She would intimidate them. And so I personally witnessed her intimidating people at times and she tried to do it to me. And the truth was, I laughed in her face, you know, and because it was ridiculous. And so that's who she really was. And, and, and when you talk about the way she, you know, she put up with the humiliation because they had this agreement. And two, at some point she really believed, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this to you, it ain't over yet. Like, don't be surprised if she's a candidate one more time. Don't be stunned. I'm telling you. So anyway, um, so they had this plan to eventually make her the first woman and and push this really, you know, and I know political terms in, in the UK and the US are a little bit different, but push this liberal agenda of, you know, more government control and more, more uh, um, government programs on the American people. That That's what they, what I think their plan was. And and um, so that's why I decided to write the book. This is what this is what I experienced. Um, and, and and again, you know, you can say whatever you want, but you know, there's a reason I was subpoenaed. There was a reason I had to testify, and there was a reason I was never prosecuted for perjury because it was all true. And yeah. so, and and you know, you might not like it, but you know what? That's that's you know what? I don't like squid, so I don't eat it. So, you know. So anyway. Um, she is, um, she's, she's kind of evil. She's dark. She's, I mean, she, I've seen her be pleasant before and I've seen her, I've seen her pleasant with certain people where I thought to myself, that's genuine. But then most of the time when you see her pleasant around people, when the cameras are on, it's acting, mm -hmm. you know, because these people are donors and there's a camera on and, and she has been caught on camera being the real Hillary Clinton. They just, they squish it.
But if you do enough research, you can come across some of the clips. We found quite a few of them in research in the books and stuff. So, Wow. <laughs> what a life you've led. So the White House and America has had a hundred years association with UFOs, right? Okay. Yes. So give no. us some. You worked in the White House, you know, and uh, you, I don't know if it's true, but I speak to a few people in the UFO scene and they said that George Bush Sr. had some knowledge about UFOs and so did Bill Clinton. Now, from your understanding, especially working in such a prestigious building, did you ever see anything? Do you know what is up in the sky? So um, I have... I was in the Air Force for four years. So you know, right, the Air Force, exactly. Right, the Air Force actually investigated. They had a public investigation of UFOs, and they also had uh, secret ones, and so did the CIA. Do I think it's possible? Yes. Have I ever seen anything that would say 100% or, or 50%? No, but I will tell you this. I understand how people get to that in certain ways. For instance... Um, over the years, you know, the U.S. government has developed some military equipment, some airplanes that were way ahead of their generation. And, you know, people that, that you know, people that are predisposed to a conspiracy theory or whatever would say, well, they got that technology from alien spaceships that crashed. Now, I don't believe that um, because I worked in the aviation industry a little bit. I was in the Air Force. My father was in uh, work for the uh, um, government, purchasing military equipment his whole life. So I know a little bit about it. Uh, I see how people get there, but but to get there, you have to leave out some some obvious, you know, answers that you don't particularly like. But I don't. I like talking about it. I understand. You know, have I seen things that I couldn't explain as a kid? Yes. Today, I would tell you they were military aircraft experimental aircraft. Did I see things in the Air Force that at the time were classified? Yep. And if you saw them, you'd say, that's a spaceship. (laughs) Yeah, but but it was an experimental or it was a new aircraft that wasn't publicly divulged yet. And um, so um, are there things that I can't explain that I've seen? Like there's some video out there recently in the last couple of years. I'm sure this is kind of what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's gun camera footage from a military aircraft of some kind of thing moving around really fast. I can't tell you what that was. Uh, my first guess is, I, the first thing I would look at is, is that it's a software glitch. Because, you know, plane, modern day cars, planes, motorcycles, they're computers, you know. Um, so especially military aircraft, they're, they're flying computers with guns and bombs. And, and so software has glitches, you know. You, you, Everything you had is had a glitch in it electronically. And, and so anyway, um, th- that's the thing I would look at. Do I enjoy, enjoy it for entertainment purposes? Yeah, I do. I watch those shows. I, I interview with people who, uh, who ask me about it all the time and, and who believe in it. And I don't say they're crazy. I don't think they're crazy. I, I don't know all they know. And I, I will tell you this, someday if it does become true, I mean, I'll have to say, yeah, you were 100% right. Um, I also, there's a humor side to UFOs, you know. Um, and what I mean by that is, you ever see the, like the memes on social media, like, you know, there's the reason nobody's made contact with us because 
they've watched us and they don't want anything to do with us. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of where I stand on it. I, um, I never, I'm never disrespectful. I, I like listening to, because the other thing too is I'm, I'm a fanatic about aviation and about technology, military technology. And a lot of times these people see things that turn out to be the next generation of, you know, some kind of hardware for the military. And I like that too. So anyway. Did you not read the disclosure that the Pentagon released last year during, I don't know, was it like July? They said they released an eight page statement. It didn't have much in it. It just said, look, there is something up in the sky. It is not China. It is tailing our Navy ships and we really don't know what it is. I did but see we'll, that. We'll yeah, give you more information that. once we know. And then we have Lou Elizondo who worked for the Pentagon and Guantanamo Bay kind of publicly say, well, you know, uh, there is something out there, but we don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I did see that. And, and I, you know, I take it with a grain of salt, but I, I don't think they're lying. I think they're, well, so <laughs> when, Bill Clinton, when Bill Clinton, when he was running for president originally, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no demographic group of people that he wouldn't try to appeal to to vote for him. And he actually said during the campaign that he was going to release all this information. And then when he got in the office, you know, the different, the Air Force, the CIA, the, the, the security services of the U.S. government said, yeah, you're not going to do that. You can't because of other reasons. Not necessarily because it's true. It's because you're going to end up divulging programs that we've spent billions of dollars on. You know that these people think are UFOs. Now I'm not saying they all are. They're not. I mean, I I've seen some of this stuff. And look, I know I can identify almost every type of military piece of equipment in a split second on a video. I can tell you what it is for the most part. I'm not as good as I used to be, but anyway. So, um, but I'm telling you, I have seen things that I question absolutely. And and um, but. For the U.S. government to say it's not China, you don't know what other people are developing. I mean, you have an ideal. Uh, I think sometimes that's what it could be. But uh, if if it ends up being something else, if it ends up really being like another civilization, um, I also like to like to think about. Like, do you ever consider what if it's a mechanical like it's a mechanical civilization, almost like the Transformer movie? And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying if they're that far advanced, maybe they're just a consciousness that, you know, developed these mechanical things that, you know, that we, you, we can't explain. It's just too high functioning. And I guess it's possible. Um, do I Some think the group- believe that though. Some people believe that the UFOs are, are not controlled by any right. you know, terrestrials. They're just, they're active, which I find really right. hard to believe myself. Because I yeah. believe if it's an aircraft, you have knowledge of aircraft, surely it needs somebody controlling it, you know? Right. Yeah. But like I said, I don't discount anything. I don't, you know, I don't get angry with people. I don't make fun of them. And and the truth is. So um, is there no rumors in the White House? And oh, sure. With the Secret yeah. Service about, you know, alien encounters, yes. ET. Yes. I worked with people who saw things that they couldn't explain. Um, when I was in the Air Force, one of the one of the most compelling stories is actually took place on a U.S. Air Force base in England. In the I want to say the 80s, 
where they swear a, a, some kind of un, unidentified um, aircraft landed on a U.S. Air Force base in England. I want to say it was um, Lake and Heath, but I'm not sure. But anyway, um, and there are people that, that go on these shows and they were security policemen. They were uh, an officer in the military at the time. And they tell their story, what they saw. And it leads you to believe that they saw something, you know. And, um, you know, of course, the, at the time, the military says, well, it was a classified program aircraft that had to land in an emergency. And that's all it was. And, and maybe that's true. But, you know, it's okay to, to think it's not. So. Yeah, I understand that. So last question is, you, you mentioned you was an air marshal. Mm -hmm. working to prevent terrorists yes. from attacking the United States. Explain to us what exactly that is, especially as everyone has seen those videos of what happened in America, yes. unfortunately tragic, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and that's what drove you to go and do this job, right? It was. It was I mean, patriotism was the main motivation. Uh, to be honest, there was a couple other things um, that got to bring us back to the area we were from, my pension and retirement, my pay was a little bit better, but it was about patriotism. And I had a set of skills, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a, a, a decent fighter and a handgun guy and, and a combatant and, uh, and they needed those skills. And, and like I said, part of it was, I was trying to get away from a little bit of the, 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 of what happened with having to testify. And, and uh, so anyway, but um, so what it is, the air marshal program, um, is, you know, it's, it's federal police officers on airplanes. And we cover a small percentage of planes that are going long distances with lots of fuel, trying to prevent what happened before. Now, it's developed a little bit more than that. We also, also, they, they look at human trafficking because we're in airports all over the world. Um, you live in the UK. I bet I visited the UK 65 times in 13 years, easily, probably 100 I flew in the Heathrow so many times. I could when you say human trafficking, do you, do you mean like girls, sex work, sex, sex work rings, right? Abduction, sure. Forced, right. Yeah. And human trafficking has a pretty broad, it's basically any human, you know, when you say you think of a, a young woman or a woman, it's any human being being forced to do something and then, you know, being moved from one area to the other. That's human trafficking. Maybe they're maybe they're forcing them to do it because they're doing counterfeiting or something. Who knows? But but you know, a lot of US agencies are getting involved in it because the more people that are doing it, the more people you catch, you know. So um anyway, they um so the air marshals, you know, the, the they had a small air marshal program uh already. Um it was set up in the 60s to stop uh, hijackings to Cuba. And then after 9-11, they, they expanded the program. They hired, you know, between three to 5,000 people. Um, we fly on, like I said, uh, all over the United States, all over the world, large planes, large amounts of fuel. Basically, we are police officers on planes to stop terrorism. Now we do, we get involved in other crimes at times when it can interfere with the plane, the function of the crew. You know, somebody who's a, a drunk, irate passenger. Um, here's a, a, a statistic for you that when I first started training as an air marshal, it's one of the first things they teach you. 
25% of all international flights that originate in the United States have a sexual assault on them. Wow. Right. I said the same thing. I was stunned. I didn't believe it at first. Now, but you have to realize the definition of a sexual assault is it's a pretty broad term. And what it is, is it's just unwanted. It starts with unwanted touching. So a passenger who's trying to, you know, hit on a flight attendant or another passenger and puts their hand on them. That's, you know, that's the beginning of the definition because you have to realize you're trapped on the plane. You can't get away from them. Right. Did you work with the American Airlines or Delta or International Airlines as well? No, you mentioned that because I know like Virgin, for example, they really hire like really attractive women, right? Yes, and some, some, yeah, some airlines really only hire attractive women. And so when you say that, I can imagine what these women go through. Yeah, yeah. you also have to, you have to realize that it's just not about women. So a lot of flight attendants are males and a lot of them are, are gay and and so they're victims too, and I've yeah. seen it. Um, and, and again, it's not about sexuality. It's about bad behavior, and it's about criminal bad behavior. We get involved in that a little bit. Um, it's, we're basically there to stop a takeover of the plane. But if, if somebody's behaving so bad that they're interfering with the duties of the crew, so there's a couple of legal technical things that are important to know about this job. So we only the, the, the U.S. program only covers U.S. carriers. But there's exceptions. So uh, we'll say British Airways. If, if British Airways also flies from New York to LA, we can cover that flight. Okay. Now they can opt out. They can say, we don't want you on our planes. But then if something happens, you know, they're, you know, they're, yeah. Well, said, sorry. yeah. yeah. So now, um, we cover, so when a plane takes off from the United States, when the door closes, technically, we're, as soon as the door closes, as far as the law is concerned, we're in the air. Mm. And we're covered by US law. The minute that plane lands in the UK, we'll say at Manchester, until the door opens, we're covered under US law. When that door opens, it's United Kingdom law. Right. So that's the that's the caveat. So when we come to other countries, one, we, you know, the air marshals, once everybody gets off the plane, we take all our equipment off, our guns off, our handcuffs, our batons. We put them in a box. We give them to the foreign government. They lock them up. They give us the receipt. And then the next day when we're leaving, they meet us back on the plane and we get our equipment back on. And um, and pretty much nobody realizes that we're doing it. Um, we're we're pretty good at being sneaky, you know. We're not perfect, but uh, if you're really paying attention, you could kind of figure it out. But um, you have to really be paying attention. So uh, that's what we have do. Have you had any encounters with Al Qaeda or ISIS? Um, directly, no. Uh, but we, I have been suicide suicide bombers on the plane because you know there was a time that it was like really high. Yeah, two, there were two incidences after 9-11. One was the underwear bomber and one was the shoe bomber. And, you know, the truth is, is that they worked, sort of. So the shoe bomber, the reason it didn't work was because they tested it and it worked for them. But what they didn't realize was that by the time this guy got in a position to detonate the shoe bomb, 
that he had been wearing the shoes for so long that the sweat from his feet made it not work. Wow. Then the underwear bomber, it, it, the explosive just malfunctioned and it actually set him on fire. And um, what really stopped that from being a disaster was there was no air marshal on the plane. A Dutch, I believe it was a Dutch film director, like a, he does documentaries, figured out what was happening, saw a flash, saw, he dove over the seats and beat the living crap out of this guy. Oh yeah, he beat this guy in the submission. And then the crew jumped in and they and they restrained him. And they, they because he could have, it still could have went off and he could have set the plane on fire. And planes are hard to put out. Mm. There's, there's a limited amount of firefighting equipment and everything on a plane can burn and everything on a plane is toxic when it burns. There's nothing that burns that's not toxic. And planes are tough. They're plastic, they have metals, there's paints, you know. So anyway, so um, yeah, so that's what we're that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we do. Um, I have, you know, I, um, actually the the most kind of significant thing that pops into my head was I was covering a flight from Philadelphia to Manchester, England. And um, before I even got on the plane, when I first got to the terminal, and when we, we have a, a lot of procedures, I can't tell you about all of them, but one of the things we do is we get to the terminal, we show up like we're a normal person, we hang around, look around, look for suspicious things. The like I talked about behavior before, behavior out of the norm. What do you normally see in an airport? People that are happy, people that are sad. I want to leave. I don't want to leave. I like to fly. I hate to fly. I love this woman. I hate this man. You know, whatever. It's normal. But then when you get to an airport, it raises. So you're looking for behavior, right? So, um, and then you you move through the airport. And so anyway, when I first this particular day, when I got to the 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 ticket area and I was watching, uh, you know, downstairs. I saw one of the one of the uh, employees for U.S. Airways recognized me. You know, knew I was an air marshal, and say, "Hey, how you doing?" We're, you know, and we're talking, and, and she starts telling me this story about these five or six guys. I think it was five from the U.K. They had U.K. passports, and but there were six of them. Five of them were originally from the Middle East, and that they were acting very suspicious. They were being loud. They were you know, drawing attention to themselves. They were young. So the first thing you think, of, I said, you know, how old are they? She said, well, the, most of them are young, like in their early 20s. I'm like, well, they're having a good time. So I didn't think much, much of it. But I, I texted my coworker who was already at the gate and said, hey, just so you know, this is what I, yeah, they told me. And he's like, yeah, I heard about them too. He heard about them too. So then um, when I got to the gate, they were there and they were behaving the same way. So I pre-boarded the plane and uh, which means I, I go down where nobody can see me and I get on the plane through a side door. And so anyway, um, I briefed the crew and after the, the regular briefing, the pilot says, hey, uh, there's a group of guys getting on here that, you know, I go, yeah, I'm aware of them. And he said, well, I saw one of them in the terminal and he told me he wanted to come up and see the flight deck. And I said, well, that's not that unusual. So he goes, ah, yeah, but I get a bad vibe. I'm like, okay. 
you know. So um, anyway, so the, they start boarding the plane. These guys get on. They are behaving like that. They're behaving so out of control that the pilot comes up to, or the, the flight, a flight attendant, I was in first class. The flight attendant comes up and says, hey, the captain wants to talk to you. Now it's a big plane. It's a big Airbus 330. It's easy to get up and move around without really being seen. So, because the, the flight deck is kind of partially covered by the galley. And so I go up there, I'm talking to him. He's like, these guys are, you know, they're doing this, they're doing that, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, this plane is not taking off till you know who these people are. I'm like, okay, take a deep breath. I'm not the lead. I'll go talk to my, the lead air marshal. So I went back to my buddy and, and I told him, he goes, all right, well, you're already handling it, so handle it. I said, okay. So I called the control center and I, and I walked them through it. And they said, okay, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to hang up. I'm going to get their passports. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to put some pressure on them and see what happens. So in the meantime, the United States is deporting somebody. And they're just, when they deport somebody, they're sending them back to England. And it has nothing to do with this other than they walk them down to the gate and they hold them there until just before they close the door. Then they put them on the plane. And then uh, when they land, British authorities take them off the plane. They're being deported for whatever reason. So coincidentally, that was happening. So I looked up and I knew, you know, I saw them there. And I walked over and I said, hey, are you, you're deporting somebody? And they said, yeah. I said, could you do me a favor? And I, I said, just quickly, this is what's going on. Could you just stand at the door to help raise their, you know, the anxiety of these guys? When you raise their anxiety, if you suspect somebody doing something wrong and you raise their anxiety, it helps really tell you what's going on. So I go over to these guys and they're goofing around and, and, and um, they're goofing around so much that people that are supposed to be sitting around them have moved to other seats. They're being very loud. And so I walk over and I go, and there, there's one guy who's a little bit older and he looks European as opposed to looking, you know, his, his skin color is white. Like, you know, like he's been in Ireland his whole life. And, uh, and these guys have a little bit of pigment, you know, they're, they look like they're Middle Eastern and a little bit. So anyway, um, I said, I walked over to him. I said, Hey, he goes, Hey, can I help you? I go, yeah, I need to see your passport. And he goes, well, who the hell are you? Because I'm just in, I'm in a polo shirt, you know, a little vest. You can't tell who I am. I said, you know who I am? I'm the guy that doesn't have to tell you who I am. Uh, uh. <laughs> you're going to give me the passports here or you're all getting off the plane, you're going to give them to me. And if I do that, you're not getting back on the plane. Your behavior has become a problem and I need your passports. Now you can either give them to me or I'm going to bring on enough people to take them from you. And I said, before you open your mouth and you say something stupid, I want you to stand up and look out the door. And he looks out the door and he sees the two customs guys in uniform. And he's like, oh, shit. And he turns to these other guys and goes, I told you, you this would blow up in our faces. You know, I told you, you guys were over the top. And I, you know, so they all give, they all give me their passports, but one guy. And he says, I'm not giving it to you. I said, no problem. And I said, uh, I'll be back in a minute and I'm going to take it from you. And I said, and when I do you're going to be staying in the United States for a long time. So he's like, he, you know, he cussed at me, called me an asshole, and he, he handed me the passport. So I took the passports, I went out to the door, and I said to the guy, that's all I need you for. He goes, you know what, we're going to hang out until you're, until you're done. I said, okay, I appreciate it. You know, so 
So I called the control center in Washington and I gave them all these guys information. They came back in five minutes and said, actually, they've been reported three times in the last three weeks. They are here in the United States. They, they work for a transportation company in England. They're um, like, limous, like a limousine company. And they're in uh, the United States for a convention. It was in Las Vegas. And the Las Vegas airport reported their behavior and somewhere else they had went. So anyway, um, so I gave them all their information and they ran it through a computer system. So in the meantime, what I didn't know was, this is where it got kind of crazy was, the pilot was very concerned about his crew and their safety and the passengers. So just coincidentally, this pilot lives in Virginia and his next door neighbor is an FBI agent. This guy, this FBI agent is the senior counterterrorism agent in the country. And it's his neighbor. They're friends. They drink beer together. They smoke cigars together. He calls this guy on the cell phone and tells him what's going on. And so this guy starts getting involved backwards. So then when my office calls me back, they're like, who did you call? I'm like, what are you talking about? You called somebody. We got a call from the FBI. I'm like, not from me. And then all of a sudden, I see the pilot coming out of the flight deck. I'm like, hold on just a minute. Let me call you back. So I go up, I go to the pilot. I go, sir, did you call somebody? Well, yeah, I called my neighbor. And I'm like, and what did your neighbor do? He goes, oh, he's a senior counterterrorism guy for the United States. I'm like, oh, okay. You could have told me that, but no problem. You know, so I called the control center. They squashed. You know, it was okay. And then, so in the meantime, they don't tell you, you know, so when they got back to me, I said, is there anything I need to know? They said, no, but when the plane lands, British security is going to come on and get these guys. We've already made the phone call. They'll be waiting for the flight. He said, you guys don't need to get involved. They're just not going to open the door until the security guys are there. So I said, okay, that's fine. So um, so I walked back and I gave their IDs back. And I said, I want you guys to understand something. If a flight attendant, if we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and a flight attendant comes up and says, you said boo, we're going to land in Newfoundland and you're going to go to jail in Canada. Do you understand that? I said, if you have to pee, get up. Don't talk to anybody. Don't interact with these passengers. Don't harass anybody. Stop behaving like you have been and realize that you've got yourself in a jam. And when we land, don't get off the plane. British security is going to be waiting for you. I'm just telling you. I'm not threatening you. I'm just telling you the way it is. Don't give us a read. Don't give me. I kept saying me because you don't want to tell them how many air marshals are. I said, don't give me a reason to lock you up or worse. And that was that. And then so I went up. I assured the pilot. We were 40 minutes behind schedule. I assured the pilot we were safe. If we weren't safe, I'd have let everybody off the plane. I said, we're going to land in Manchester. Everything's fine. And we did. And when we opened the door, six of the most British, intimidating British security people you've ever seen in your life got on that plane. And I'm telling you, those guys, you could hear them like the, the air escape out of them. They were just, I don't know what happened to them. I'm sure they just put the fear of God in them. So anyway, that's just one example where, now were they, here's the thing. Were they just goofballs or were they probing the system? 
that's that's what we're worried about. So I've been involved in a couple other arrested airports for people's bad behavior, but you know, never any. I never stopped a terrorism thing. I mean, I, I may have. We may Has have. There heard. been any false accusations on on you guys's behalf for somebody? Maybe as I mentioned earlier. You know, a brown person with a beard, with a backpack on a plane. Now, everyone, I can tell you, as somebody who used to get on a train in London, yeah, every time somebody, and it's so that we're, we're indoctr indoctrinated because it's not accurate information. Every time a brown person gets on the train, London train, underground, I'm sure you've been on the train, with mm -hmm. a backpack and a beard, people start trembling. People start trembling. This could be just like a regular dude. No, I know. I know. But, but so... I don't know exactly why they're reacting, but I will tell you for me, again, it's about behavior. You know, you could put 10 guys on the train and I don't care what they look like. They could be dressed in Muslim attire and be reading out of the Quran. The person you want to be looking at is the one that has, again, like the woman with the purse. She's not carrying it. It's not on her side. She's got it in front of her like this. And she's not making eye contact. And maybe you notice one of her eyes is dilated and the other one's not. And which would tell you maybe she's under the influence of a drug, which is very common and with this type of suicide terrorism. And, and so, you know, again, it's I, I understand how people get caught up in the stereotype, but but that's not I'm not. And it's not OK. But you're also it's it's like. It's like the the person who takes their kid to the pool for the first time. And, you know, tells the kid, don't get near the wood and you're going to drown. Well, that's not the truth. You know, you're going to be careful and you're going to teach them to swim. And, and, and they're, you know, but, but what they see is the fear and fear is, is tough. And uh, fear can cause you to say and do things that, you know, are not necessarily accurate. And, and um, I understand where those stereotypes come from. I don't agree with them. And, 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 you know, although you, you can call what we do profiling, it's not, it's, it's, I mean, it's profiling, but it's profiling behavior. I'm not looking at you because you're a Muslim or because you're a Mexican or because I'm looking at you. And here's a good example. I'm not looking at you because you're a Mexican or you look Hispanic. I'm looking at you because you have six cell phones on your lap and you're changing <laughs> the SIM cards. That's why I'm looking at you. And while you were talking on one of the phones, the gate agent swears she heard the Spanish word for murder. So that's why we're looking at you. And that turned out to be something that actually was, it was criminal. And this guy was shady. And my friend who stumbled onto him made a huge case out of it. And it happened at the Philadelphia airport. So anyway, but it, it's about behavior. I mean, it's easy for somebody who to say, oh, it's just because we're, we look a certain way. Well, that's not the truth. It may be the way society might look at you, a certain part of society, but that's not what, what, law enforcement and anti-terrorism is looking at. We don't care what you believe or we, you know, we don't care what you read or what you, how your, what your religion is. We care what your behavior is, behavior, bad behavior. Like I said earlier, right? You can't hurt me without your hands. If your, if your brain is telling your hands to do something evil, that's behavior. So. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm thrown away. I am so grateful for you coming on here. You have Thank traveled you. all over the world. The last question I'm going to leave you is, where is the best place you have visited outside of the U.S.? Because, I mean, you've traveled everywhere. You work yeah. in aviation as well. 
um yeah where's the where's the best country that you've been okay. to uh, uh, you know what i'm going to say outside the united states yeah yeah so so i love all of europe i've never been Turkey anywhere. has good food my favorite food i'm not turkish but by the way you mentioned you lived in turkey for a while right yeah turkish food is my favorite food I yeah, love. Yeah. Wait, I would love to live in Turkey. Middle Eastern food, Turkish food, Moroccan food, all very similar. Some of the Mediterranean, yeah. So I've been to a lot of places. Um, I like them all in certain ways, but I, like there's a there's a place. I'm not even sure I remember where it is now, but there's a you know there's a, a pub outside of London that I love, and it, <laughs> you know there's a thousand pubs, but this is just one that. I don't know. You know, you walk in the front door and it's three. Well, you can't even walk in the front door because you have to walk in the back door because the front door is only like four and a half feet high because it's 350 years old, you know. Yeah. And and um, there's a place in Israel that I, we used to go. I love that. I love Israel. I love. I, so but if, you know, some people ask me, like. When I was flying, like what country, what struck you about certain yeah. I thought Denmark, uh, Amsterdam, like was exceptionally clean. Okay. Uh, I thought, uh, and not that any other places weren't clean, but the, I went to some places in, in um, did I say Amsterdam? Yeah, in Amsterdam, and uh, that were just, God, it was so, they were so clean, it was like weird. And, uh, you know, I found a lot of places that were just, they were enjoyable. You're there for a short time. Um, I loved... Like I said, I went to the UK, excuse me, so many times, I can't even count. I mean, I've got, I've got seven official U.S. Pass passports that I filled in 13 years. In 13 years of, of flying as an air marshal, I flew over 3 million air miles. So to give you an idea how far that is, that's the, the circumference of the Earth is about 24,000 miles in, in diameter. If you flew around it, that's 156 times around the earth in 13 years. So, uh, and again, like the Secret Service, I don't regret any of it. It was a tough job. It was long days, a lot of pressure on your family, uh, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was great. Well, I want to say thank you so much for You're coming welcome. on here and speaking to me and teaching me and my audience, you know, what it's like to be in your position and your shoes and working with such people, working with for the United States, you know, um, where can we find you? Okay. So is, can I hold up my book real quick? Yeah, absolutely, man. So that's the first one. Okay. Price is a character. Nice. And then the second one is a history book of the Secret Service. And it's, it's what makes it different is it's from my perspective of being in the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mentioned it a little bit before, it's, it's a book about the Secret Service. You know, you have a perception of it from movies, but it's just a government agency doing a good job, an important job, but we're all humans. And, and it tells you from that perspective. Um, I'm on YouTube, just my name, Gary Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I do less social media now than I did before. But I, the truth is, I I don't turn down interviews. Um, when people reach out to me, uh, I usually uh, make time to talk. I always make time to talk to them. And um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing. And uh, um, if it, if somebody has a question for me, you can reach out on my um, Instagram or my uh, Facebook. 
Facebook, I have two pages. I have a professional book page that my co-writer Grant answers, and he's pretty good about getting back to you in a day or so. And then my personal Facebook page, people can message me and just say, look, hey, I read your book. I have a question and I'll answer you. So anyway. Your YouTube page, uh, the contact details, well, I found you for an agent, right? So it doesn't go directly to you. It goes for the agent. That's, and then That's Grant. Yeah, that's yeah. my co-writer. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, that's my co-writer, Grant. So it's, wow. right, he set that up for me. Because I am, when we you first messaged us, I was like, I, I talked to Grant on the phone. I'm like, what platform does she use? You know, because I'm not technical. I can yeah. use a computer, but I'm not. You know, but your setup is great and it worked very well. Thank so, you so thank much. You so I much. really appreciate you. It was an honor to speak to you and I wish you a great 2022. You too. You too. And, and be safe. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I hope your guests enjoy our, our interview. Thank Absolutely. You thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So that was the unbelievable and incredible Gary but guys, please do check out his books. You can find them anywhere you can buy books. If you want the rundown and what it is like to be a secret service officer from his perspective, or working alongside Bill and Hill, um, Hillary, <laughs> whatever you know them as, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. Um, it was an honor to speak to him and get the rundown. And uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to this. Make sure you share this with every single person you know. We're trying to get into the top 200 on iTunes charts. So please do. That being said, make sure you guys check his YouTube channel and um, social media. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hey, yo, check it out. It's the kid. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Vocal Minds with Sophia. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, and now on iTunes, right? Follow her on both Instagram and Twitter under Vocal Minds Sophia. And don't forget to tell a friend about the podcast. Matter of fact, tell all your friends about the podcast. What are you waiting for? Honestly.